our online campus is having to watch this tape delay. If you're watching this now, we're, we apologize. Hopefully get it fixed for next week. It was kind of beyond our control. But I wanted to show fables, or is it the Word of God? And the answer is? It's the Word of God. Absolutely. So that is our basis for how we live, right? Secondly, last week we preached about how uh, that our country was Christ-centered, Bible-centered, prayer-centered, and our country was in fact founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Bible. So, having said that, now is where I'm going to take this series and start going against the current. Is that all right with everybody? Uh, how many want to know what the Bible says? I sincerely started studying this for myself. I, 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 I'm sure I put in 100 hours of study time on some of these subjects last year, uh, just in my own time, aside from normal sermons and things, because I wanted to know for myself, uh, what are the things we should be believing? What should we be standing on? I'm, I'm not preaching one political platform or another. Where I'm coming from is, what does the Bible say? And it's going to take me today and next week to tackle the subject, socialism or capitalism. How many wants to know what the Bible has to say about that? Anybody want to know? I'm, I'm very excited about this. It's going to take me two weeks to do. I'm going to, I'm going to get about half done today, and I'm going to get the other half tomorrow. And you're not going to want to miss next week, because next week there are two passages in the book of Acts that people point to and say, see right there, it's socialism. I'm going to explore those passages with you next week and explain why it's not socialism. And so uh, let's just get dive right in. If you've got uh, version notes, uh, you'll see them on your version on your phone. You can save these notes for later uh, and pull them up. But I'd like for you to stand for the reading of God's Word, if you would. And, uh, and I want you to hang in there. I've got a little bit of history for you today, but I've got, uh, I, I want to just share the Word, and I want to give you some examples, and we're going to find out what the Word has to say this week and next week about socialism and capitalism, right? So I know as Americans, we're brought up capitalist, but is that what the Bible advocates? So we're going to dive into that today. Socialism, everybody say socialism or capitalism. What does the Bible have to say? Well, let's, we got one verse of scripture here, and it could start to give you a clue as to which way God leans. Second Thessalonians 3.10, here's a scripture you won't hear many people preach. Because it sounds harsh, and people don't want to do anything to offend anybody. And I'm not here to offend anybody, but I am here to speak the truth. Is that okay? Does, does anybody still like the truth? Do we still like the truth? Second Thessalonians 3.10, are you ready? For even when we were with you. Now let me stop right there. Who wrote the Bible? God, right? So Paul wrote this letter to Thessalonians, but it was the Holy Spirit that actually was the author. So we commanded you this. We didn't suggest this. We didn't say, hey, if you think it's a good idea, do this. He said we commanded. Everybody say commanded you. Commanded. Commanded. Yes, Paul is talking to Thessalonians, but ultimately the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Is that New Testament? I told you, I'm gonna, I, in the next month and a half, I'm going to preach some stuff that's going to make you uncomfortable. But how many want to know what God and the Bible has to say? If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now, if God was a socialist, he'd say, you ain't got to work. Somebody else will work for you, and they'll feed you. 
But here God says in the New Testament, you don't work, starve. That's the Bible, folks. How many want to explore this? One of my favorite preachers, we're going to pray in just a minute. One of my favorite preachers of all time is Tony Evans, wonderful minister in Dallas, Texas. And he, he got up one Sunday and he told us, he pulled this scripture out. He said, don't come to me begging for food at this church. You don't work, starve. I don't care what happens to you. He's a little harsher than I am. We commanded you, if you don't work, don't eat. Thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Uh, I, I, I stand here in trepidation because I know this is going to go against the waters of a lot of society and a lot of beliefs. But God, I'm not here to stir the pot. I'm just here to teach and for us to learn what you say about things and what your, how you expect us to conduct our lives. So God, I, I sincerely stand before you and I, I humbly and I ask you to anoint me to speak your word now. Not in, in word and tongue only, but also in, in spirit and in truth. And may this seed fall in the good soil of our hearts and grow bear forth fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. 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 Hold your Bibles up and let's boldly declare, Father, today, this week, by your grace, I'm going to be a doer of your word and not a hearer only, deceiving my own self. Now, Lord, anoint my ears, anoint my heart, anoint my spirit my soul, my mind, and my body to receive the truth of your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen, amen, amen. If they got a green bracelet, high five them. If not, air high five them. Say, it's good to see you today. I told you that at some point in time, I'm going to try at least for a while to give you a definition out of a modern dictionary versus the original 1828 Dictionary that was first authored and put out by Noah Webster. So you got 1828 and also have 1988, 160 years apart. I just picked the word joy. In Webster's Dictionary, you'll see it on the screen, 1990 or 1988 edition, excuse me, joy was defined, this is the only definition, intense happiness or great delight, that which gives rise to this emotion or on which the emotion centers, the outward expression of the emotion. So if you look up a modern dictionary, that's the entire definition you're going to find anywhere in a modern dictionary, 1988 edition. So I looked in my 1828 Webster's Dictionary, which was originally done by Noah Webster, and the first definition you come across, 1828 original edition, joy, a noun, the passion or emotion excited by the acquisition or expectation of good, that excitement of pleasurable feelings, which is caused by success, good fortune, that gratification of desire of some good possessed. Okay, so it's pretty much the same. However, where the 1988 edition stops, this one has almost an entire page more. And I want to just pull out three of them and show you how it was defined in the early years of American history versus what they've done with our dictionary now. Here's one. Webster's Dictionary, 1828 original edition, joy noun, a glorious and triumphant state, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, Hebrews 12. Wait a minute. Why is this one using scripture to define the word joy, but this 1988 version has taken scripture out? Because people nowadays don't want to hear the word, and they don't want to be Christian, but that's how we were started. 
Is this okay? Secondly, another one. Webster's Dictionary, 1828, original edition, joy noun. The cause or joy of happiness. For you are our glory and joy, 1 Thessalonians 2. Again, something found in the 1828 edition that we don't find in the 1988 edition. Thirdly, Webster's Dictionary, 1828, original edition. Joy, verb, to rejoice, to be glad, to exult. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk 3. Listen, you ought to get you one of these. You can order them online. This is not like originally from 1828. It's just what was in there. You can buy these online. It's so powerful to find out how they were defined years ago versus now. They're trying to take God and Christ and the Bible out of America. And I'm here to tell you I want him back in America. Amen? Glory to God. Across the centuries, there have been many different forms of government that have Uh, provided a wide variance of results. Some good, some bad, some downright atrocious. So where does America fit in with these uh, various forms? Is America's economic system of capitalism biblical? What makes our government unique among the nations? How is it possible that our form of government has not changed in over 225 years while operating under the same governing documents. Would the founding fathers affirm that the Bible was instrumental in producing our constitutional republic? I think we proved that last week, yes. Does the Bible identify the best economic system for a society to go by? Now, I'm not talking spiritual. We know spiritually the only spiritual economic system God gave us is tithes and offerings, and that's how we're blessed. How many knows? How many is a witness to that? Amen? You give tithes and offerings... You bless God, and God blesses you, and you just, you just bless. How many are, how many, hold your hand if you say, I'm just so blessed, Pastor. I'm just so blessed. I mean, look at the hands there. I'm blessed. I'm just so blessed. All right? I'm talking about for, not the kingdom of God, but for an earthly, national country like America. What is socialism, and why is it being promoted so heavily in America by one particular group of people? Under socialism, also called collectivism, communitarianism, progressivism, you've heard the term progressives, uh, social democracy, everybody say social democracy, because at the end I'm going to come back to this. Whatever, what is that? Under these, these four names under socialism, whatever is produced by individual citizens, capital, profits, crops, is divided and shared among everybody. So there's no competition, there is no reward for excellent work, and there's no penalty for substandard work. It doesn't really matter. Everything you do gets thrown in one big pot, and everybody gets the equal share. That means if you do work or you don't work, don't matter, you get your share. That means if you do whatever you slough off, you get just the same as if somebody who works really hard. And I think the Bible, and I'm going to prove to you today and next week, the Bible is contrary to that. The focus in socialism is on the group and never the individual. And interestingly enough, the uh, the first system introduced in America in the colonies was actually socialism. Did you know America was originally founded, its first two colonies, Jamestown and Massachusetts Bay Colony, the Pilgrims and Plymouth Rock, were actually socialists to start with. Why? America's first English settlement was authorized in 1606 by King James. The same Bible, King James Version, same king, established the first colony in 1606 in Jamestown. Now, 
Why is it important we know that? Because in the old world in England, land was largely and mostly owned by nothing but the king. And he allowed people to use parts of his land. Basically, he owned the whole country for the most part. The king of England would sometimes grant portions of land to nobles and to, and to all these people, lords, dukes and all. But he could always take the land back and he could give it to whomever he wished. The people lived largely in populous areas. And so they had limited trades. They had limited vocations. Often the king told them what kind of job they're going to do. You're a baker. Rest of your life, that's it. And they, they would shop at the market right by their house. They would go to the market for their needs. They would, everything was right there. And they were in a group of people. And they were never made to work all that hard. Well, now they get shipped to the New World, America, and it's hostile, it is largely unproductive, it is a wild wilderness, and it is very different. Now, you have to understand, for new settlers, they didn't know how to exist in life like this. It'd be like taking somebody born and raised in New York City, which they will tell you in New York City, most people live their entire life in a five-block radius. They work within five blocks, they live there. They, they, their grocery stores there, their shopping's there, their bagel stores, everything they do is within five blocks. They very seldom ever leave that little five-block area. Take that person, stick them in the middle of Alaska, and tell them to survive. That's basically what was going on with our new settlers coming to the new world. And as a result of them living their entire lives dependent on the king, they were unaccustomed to hard work, which was necessary to survive. So as a result... 104 colonists first arrived in Jamestown, and two-thirds were dead within six months. Two years later, the population grew to 214, and only 60 survived the winter of 1609, known as the Starving Time. One, the conditions were harsh. Two, they couldn't get people to work. As a matter of fact, this is going to be gross, I know, but let me just tell you how bad it was in Jamestown. George Percy, you'll see it on the screen... An official in the colony described it as such. Now all of us at Jamestown, beginning to feel the sharp prick of hunger, which no man truly described, but he had, which hath tasted the bitterness there. In other words, you don't really know until you've actually had that. That's what he's saying. He lived in the colony, so this is first-hand experience. He said, then having fed upon horses and other beasts as long as they lasted, we were glad to make shift with vermin as dogs, cats, rats, and mice, and to eat boots, shoes, and other leather that some should come by. That's, that's some serious starvation, folks. And now famine beginning to look ghastly and pale in every face, that nothing was spared to maintain life, and to do those things which seems incredible, and to dig up dead corpses out of the graves and to eat them. And some have licked up the blood which has fallen from their weak fellows, and amongst the rest, this was most lamentable, that one of our colony murdered his wife, ripped the child out of her womb, threw it into the river, and after chopped the mother in pieces, salted her for his food. Folks, don't ever let anybody tell you that the people that founded Jamestown and all had it made. It was very difficult. But it was difficult, one of the reasons, because they refused to work. And I'm going to show you this in a minute. And that leads me to point number one. Are you ready for point number one? Here we go. You ready? You're not going to like this. We're supposed to work. Work's not a cuss word. Work's not from the devil. Work's from God. Amen. Much of the reason for the starving time was the people adamantly refused to work for themselves. They relied on the efforts of a few who worked, and what they produced was divided and distributed among the whole. 
So John Smith, who had been the governor prior to the starving time, had implemented a policy directly from the Bible. Here's what he implemented. Here's what biographers of John Smith wrote. The majority of them, unaccustomed to discipline or regular employment, showed symptoms of stubborn resistance to his authority, which provoked him to reprove them in sharp terms. He told them that their recent sufferings ought to work a change in their conduct and that the majority of them must be more industrious, must work harder, or starve. That it is not reasonable that the labors of 30 or 40 honest and industrious men should be devoted to the support of 150 idle loiterers. And that therefore whoever would not work must not eat and cited 2 Thessalonians 3.10. When John Smith did this, the colony began to change in the right direction. But let me show you where work started. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? Work it and take care of it. Can I tell you something? This was not a result of sin. This was prior to sin. God instituted work not as a curse, but actually as a blessing for us. Before sin, Adam and Eve had a perfect job. They were in a perfect environment. There was no sin, and they had a perfect job. They perfectly worked. Now, when sin came in, their work changed where they had to work by the sweat of their brow with the thorns and thistles. Eve would have pain in childbirth. All this stuff came as a result of sin. But originally, work was given to mankind as a blessing. As a matter of fact, it will be in the afterlife in eternity will have work. Matthew 25, 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge. I will give you more responsibilities. I will give you work of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Listen, work was prior to sin. Work was after sin. And guess what? We're going to work a job without the pain of sin attached to it in eternity. God intended for us to work. Everybody say work. Well, John Smith had placed the responsibility to produce squarely on the shoulders of each individual. They could no longer rest on the laurels of somebody else when he took over. As a matter of fact, historians from his time said, it was the best law possible for such a time and place. It would hardly have been necessary except for the foolish, socialistic plan of the London company not to give land to each man to work for himself, but to have all work and share alike. The lazy men, of course, were quite willing to let others do the work as long as they could eat of the common stores. Even the men of energy would not work very hard, for they could thus add nothing to their own property. I want to tell you, the Bible clearly considers work a virtue. I need you to hear me. Is this the Bible? Here we go. Proverbs 14, 23. In all labor there is... But mere talk leads to poverty. He's basically saying, get out and actually do something and don't talk about it. Exodus 29, watch this. Six days you shall what? Labor and do your work. Notice that God doesn't say six days you can do labor. Or if you feel up to it, you can do labor. He said six days you shall do labor. Look, I'm not advocating a six-day work week. But I want to tell you, for uh, almost 2,000 years... Actually, 4,000 years almost of human history, the work week was six days a week. Do you know when a five-day week started? 
Ford Motor Company, on May 1st, 1926, Henry Ford became one of the first companies to standardize the five-day work week instead of the prevalent six-day week that everybody else was doing. Then 12 years later, in 1938, Franklin D. Roosevelt signed the Fair Labor Standards Act, which established the five-day work week for workers. I'm not saying we got to go to six days, but what I am saying is you have two groups of people. You have some that want to try to work two days a week and have somebody else help them finish the difference. And then you have some people that smoke it over here and they just work seven days a week. There is a balance in there, but we are supposed to work. Watch what Proverbs 12, 11 says. He who tills his land will have what? And let me just stop right there. The opposite is true then of that. No work, no bread. God doesn't say here, well, if you don't work hard enough, somebody else will feed you bread. God said, you don't work, you ain't going to have plenty of bread. But if you do, you will. That's anti-socialist, folks. Watch this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. Make it your goal to live a quiet life. It's quiet in here today. <laughs> I told you I'm going against the current, folks. Minding your own business and working with your hands just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live. The Bible tells us if you want unbelievers to respect you and respect the kingdom of God, let them see a good hard work ethic in your life. Folks, this is the Bible. You want to hear something anti-socialist? Here we go. Finish the scripture. And you will not need to depend on others. In a socialist society, they are totally dependent on other people. Here God is clearly saying, when you work with your own hands and you do what you're supposed to, you will never need to depend on someone else. That's called capitalism. Somebody say amen. Is this okay? Look, hard work is a biblical teaching. Because hard work was what the founders termed as industry or hard work or industrious. It was such an important biblical truth they wanted their, their kids to know. Look what Thomas Jefferson said. He told his daughter, of all the cankers or the enemies of human happiness, none corrodes with so violent yet so bankful an influence as indolence, which means laziness. He said laziness is killing people. Noah Webster, the dictionary I just read from, signer of the declaration, or excuse me, not, uh, the schoolmaster of America, he said labor is one of the best preservatives, both of health and moral habits. John Witherspoon, signer of the Declaration of Independence, said habits of industry or hard work prevent the introduction of many vices and are intimately connected with sobriety and good morals. Idleness is the mother or nurse of almost every vice. And want or lust, which is in its inseparable companion, urges men on to the most abandoned and destructive courses. Industry or hard work, therefore, is a moral duty of greatest moment, absolutely necessary to national prosperity and the sure way of obtaining the blessing of God. Now, if I were to ask many of you and many out in the church world today and say, what was the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and why they were destroyed, the number one answer most everybody's going to give me is homosexuality. But did you know that's not a reason that God gave as to why he destroyed them? Homosexuality was a byproduct of four other massive sins. And they're listed right here in Ezekiel 16, 49. Are you ready? Say, I'm ready. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. He's getting ready to tell us this is why Sodom got destroyed. This was their problem. She and her daughter had pride. Pride was number one. 
Fullness of food, basically it was, a, it was more than a fullness of food. They would take and they would never give. So they would take, 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 if you study that out. Watch this, an abundance of idleness. They wouldn't work. Neither did they strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. They wouldn't help. Homosexuality and all the other sins that they did was a product of pride and too much idleness of time. How many of you know if you have a teenager, if you ever had one, idleness is not good? Get them busy. Well, guess what? It's not good for anybody. We need a Sabbath day rest, but we also need to work. Is this the Bible I'm teaching here? Did you know that in his eight years of presidency, President Ronald Reagan would take one month, one full month a year, maybe not all at one time, but added all the days, he would take one month, go to his ranch in California where he could wield a chainsaw, where he could dig holes for a post to put fences up. He could swing an axe. He wanted to maintain physical labor. And do you know every one of you has seen Ronald Reagan's ranch? So no, I haven't. Yeah, you have. How many's ever seen MASH? Remember the show MASH? That was filmed on his ranch. The opening scene where the helicopter comes in, that's all Ronald Reagan's ranch. Anyways, that was free for thought. Booker T. Washington, head of the famous Tuskegee Institute, told his students, no man can read the Bible and be lazy. Christianity increases a man's wants and therefore increases his capacity for labor. Here's how God says it in Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Are you ready? Hold on to your bootstraps. Here we go. You ready? Go to the ant, you sluggard. God's calling people sluggards now. He said, consider its ways and be wise. Watch what the ant does and model your life after him. It has no commander, no overseer, no ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Folks, that's the Bible. Nowhere does it say, don't worry, slouch around, sleep in every day, don't work. Somebody else will work and feed you. He says very clearly, if you don't get out and work and try to do something for your life, you're going to be in poverty and you're going to have scarcity. This is the Bible, folks. Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of a diligent man shall be made rich. You can't get rich in socialism. Why? Because no matter what you earn, it goes into a big pot, gets divided up among everybody. I always find it interesting that these educated professors at Harvard and Yale and all the great educated, they are pumping our college kids full of socialism, 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 socialism. I just want to show up one day and say, excuse me, if you're so much for socialism, why don't you resign from your cushy quarter of a million dollar a year job and you go live in a socialist country since it's so great? Why are you telling everybody else to live that way when you're not willing to live that way? Man, I'm going to preach. Jesus was a carpenter, but you know what? Nowhere did he have to did he say he had to give all his money to some pool so everybody else could live off him. Paul was a tent maker and said, I provided for myself by working with my hands. Let me tell you something. We've got to work. Amen. So let's talk about socialism today. I'm going to blow you away. You ready? Uh, we should really study this stuff before we say we want it. Listen, listen. In a recent poll, 30% of Americans under the age of 35 said they're in favor of socialism. 
Here's the bad part. 98% of those that say they're in favor could not define it. 98% have no idea what it means, but they're on their cell phones and they're saying, let's get it. We want to be socialists. Their definition was wrong, whatever they said. Do you know what the number one tenet, the number one guiding principle of socialism is? You ready? No private property. No private property. No private. Are you kidding me? No private property. Is that biblical? I'm getting ready to show you. No, a million times. No, it's not biblical. Look, the young people are sitting around on their phones and they're being told by professors that this is good, this is good. And now they're saying they want it and they don't have a definition of it. No private property didn't work at Jamestown. It doesn't work anywhere. Here's what young people think socialism means. Are you ready? Here's their number one answer. Free education and free medical. Okay. Here's why that's a lie. It's not free. Ever. In every socialist country in the world today, the very minimum tax rate is 57%. I met a guy when I was on sabbatical who lived in Sweden for a year. And he said, when you hit about $75,000 a year and up, your taxes went up to 87%. So socialism sounds great, but somebody's got to pay the bill. This notion of free education, pastor, pastor, you don't have to pay for college. Okay, so number one, it, it devalues it. But number two, here's what young people don't understand in America about socialistic education. Are you ready? It's a farce because what the government doesn't tell you in these socialist countries and what our government's going to start not trying to tell you is this. They put a test out. And if you don't score high enough on their test, the government then says, sorry, no college for you. You go work in the sewers. That's it. That's your job the rest of your life. Well, it sounds good, but the government controls who goes to school and who doesn't. Does that sound biblical at all to you? Socialism has never worked in any nation in the world. There are a few nations that call themselves socialists, but here's what they do. Are you ready? They tell you you can own property and you can have business. That's called capitalism. Here's the danger in socialism. It always, here's the danger. Are you ready? Socialism always progresses to communism. Real socialist countries are one step from communism and they go there every single time. The only countries in the world that have experienced genocide in the last hundred years are countries where they were communist. As a matter of fact, in four communist nations in the last hundred years, conservative estimates are that a hundred million people have been murdered. That is clearly not God. So does the Bible and Jesus promote owning private property? If socialism, if the number one tenet is private property, then is there anywhere in there where Jesus tells us it's okay to have private property? Well, let's take a look. Mark 10, 29 through 30, Jesus speaking. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, Jesus is telling us we'll receive homes. Brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. He's telling us right there, we'll get homes and fields. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty two. Paul's rebuking the church at Corinth for doing communion wrong, but he says, don't you have what? Homes to eat and drink in. Matthew eight fourteen. when Jesus came into Peter's 
house. He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. I could go on and on and on. Jesus didn't walk in and say, hey, Peter, man, you need to get rid of your house and give it to everybody else. He came in, prayed for his mother-in-law, and she got healed. So point number two is this. Jesus endorses people owning private property. Because Jesus endorses that, it flies in the face of socialism. Jesus is endorsing capitalism. Don't you see what the scriptures say? John Smith returned to England in 1609. He left the colony. It went back to socialism under a guy named Thomas West. He served for a couple of years, and the next governor who followed him, Thomas Dale. He reversed this trend, went back to what John Smith did. Here's what he said. He ruled with an iron rod of iron. He enforced Smith's rule by whipping those who would not work. He really was out there. And he wisely began to break down the old system of holding all property in common. He gave three acres of land to each of the old colonists and let them have time to work for themselves. A few years later, women were brought over. The men came to have real homes here. And with homes and wives and families, men were willing to stay in America. Now, very quickly, 13 years later, the pilgrims land at Plymouth Rock. 102 land, 51 survived the first winter. 50% die. The pilgrims were originally socialists as well. And the lands and labor of their original colony, they were in a common storehouse. They were socialists for seven years. Instead of having two days to work for private profit, they had six days a week were devoted to work to give to the common store so everybody could have food. They were being forced to share their homes, gardens, and land, a communal arrangement called socialism. In essence, it was a redistribution of labor and wealth was forced on them. But the pilgrims quickly found out what Jamestown found out, and that was this. From their own experience, private property and labor were respected. If not, if you didn't have that, there'd be little incentive to work. So in the spring of 1623, Governor William Bradford and others realized unless something was done to make people more productive and work hard and give them some kind of incentive, they were all going to die. So here's what happened. So they began to think how they might raise as much corn as they could and obtain a better crop than they had done. That they might not still languish in misery, the governor, with the advice of the chiefest among them, so all the leaders of the colony, gave way that they should set corn every man for his own particular, and in that regard trust to themselves, and so assigned to every man a parcel of land according to the proportion of their number. This had very good success, for it made all hands very industrious. Basically, they said, we're going to give you this parcel of land, you work it for yourselves or you don't eat. All of a sudden, everybody started working. So much more corn was planted than otherwise might have been by any means the governor or any others could use. Watch this. The women now went willingly into the field, took their little ones with them to set corn, which before would allege weakness and inability. I can't work. Whom to have compelled would have been thought great tyranny or oppression. In other words, you make them go out and do it. Oh, you're tyrannical. But now all of a sudden, give them a piece of land. Say, this is your land. You grow as much as you want. You get the kids involved. All of a sudden, everybody's out working. Isn't it amazing when you do God's system God's way, how industrious we all get? Somebody say amen. The experience that we had in the common course and condition tried sundry years amongst godly and sober men that the taking away of property... And bring in community into a commonwealth would make them happy and flourishing as if they were wiser than God. For this community, so far as it was, was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment that would have been to the benefit and comfort. For the young men, watch this, this, was in the, this is the pilgrims here. 
For the young men that were most able and fit for labor and service did repine or express discontent that they should spend their time and strength to work for other men's wives and children without any recompense. Sonny, we need you to go to work, and we're going to have you work because we got about 10 wives in here that their husbands won't work and they won't work, so we need you to get out and work so you can feed them. Sonny's saying, no, I don't blame you. The strong or man of parts had no more to division of victuals and clothes than he that was weak and not able to do a quarter the other could. This was thought injustice. Well, you think? The aged and graver men to be ranked and equalized in labors and victuals, clothes, etc. with the meaner, meaner meaning better physical shape, and younger sort thought it some indignity and disrespect to them. Listen to this. And for men's wives to be commanded... To do service for other men as dressing their meat, washing their clothes, etc. They deemed it a kind of slavery. Neither could many husbands well brook, which means tolerate it. So that, here's how that works. Are you ready? Brother Lively, we know you love Sister Lively, but hey, there's about 25 of us in here. We're not going to go to work for ourselves. So we're so glad Sister Lively's going to cook for us all. She's going to wash our underwear. Hey, she's going she gonna to scrub our feet. Don't you just want your wife of all them many years to be forced to do that for all of us under a socialist economy? Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Lively said, I'm out. Who votes for that? That's not God's system. Governor William Bradford fixed this. He said, everybody's getting a parcel of land. Everybody's going to work. And he used two scriptures to do it. Are you ready? The first scripture he used, you guessed it, 2 Thessalonians 3.10. He said, everybody who don't work, you don't eat. Your problem. You want to starve, that's up to you. All of a sudden, the colony, everybody's working. They got their kids working. The second scripture he used, you ready for this? 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, listen to this, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Folks, this scripture is as anti-socialistic as you can find. Nowhere does the Holy Spirit in the New Testament say, well, if anybody don't feel like working or providing for us, it's okay. Somebody else will do it. We'll throw it in a big pot. Everybody will be happy. Folks, God is not promoting a socialistic economy. He's, a, he's, he's promoting capitalism. That's good. Is anybody okay with this? So let me close with a great example of democratic socialism. This is a true example in, in, in the world. Everybody say democratic socialism. Is everybody okay with learning what the Bible says? It's okay to preach that it's good to work. How many of you feel good when you work? I mean, you go, you sleep good at night. You feel there's something inside of you that feels good when you put in a good day's work. One country put democratic socialism in place. Listen very closely for the next couple of minutes and we'll pray. This government began handing out free stuff, but they started monitoring everything. They started handing out free checks. Sounds very familiar to me. I like what we're doing now. But this government, in return for all that, started monitoring all your phone calls. Sounds familiar. They had spies out on the street to watch. Sounds like COVID and people spying and calling in. Everything you see some of this stuff doing is going the way this country went. The quotes I'm about to give you were eyewitnesses who lived in this country, and this is what they saw happen. Newlyweds immediately received a $1,000 loan from the government to establish a household. 
We had big government programs for families. All daycare and education were free. High schools were taken over by the government and college tuitions were subsidized. Everyone was entitled to free handouts, such as food stamps, clothing, and housing. Does this sound familiar? Sounds great, but the government decided and figured out they got to pay for this somehow, so they started charging people 80% tax rates. That means you make $10,000, they take $8,000, you keep two. I don't know, anybody wants to sign up for that. And how many of you think the government can manage things better than you? Not too many of us. This country's government started regulating everything. Now that they got you by the hand and they, you're dependent on them, they started telling you what books you could read or not read. They started telling you what size and shape table you could have in your dining room. They told you what kind of car you could drive. They monitored and told you every living thing you could do. The books, everything. Then they provided free health care. Let's see how that worked. Before, this is an eyewitness, we had very good medical care. Many American doctors trained at the University of Vienna. After democratic socialism, health care was socialized. Free for everyone. Sounds great. Doctors were salaried by the government. The problem was, since it was free, the people were going to the doctors for everything. When the good doctor arrived in the office at 8 a.m., 40 people were already waiting on him, and at the same time, the hospitals were full. If you needed elective surgery, like a liver transplant, a heart transplant, they call that elective surgery, you had to wait a year or two for your turn. There was no money for research as it was poured into socialized medicine. Research at the medical schools literally stopped. So the best doctors left Austria and immigrated to other countries, which gave you less inferior, inferior and less educated doctors, which made medical go worse. Did you know right now, if you're a citizen of Canada, they have socialist health care. And I know people that have had to leave Montreal because their kid was deathly sick and come across the border of the United States because emergency room wait times in Montreal, Canada are 24 hours or longer and their kid would have died. Elective surgeries. You wait in Canada two years to have an elective surgery like Brian's knee surgery. You'd have waited two years for that, Brian. Watch this. Public schools were forced to remove any mention of God in this country, and the government confiscated all guns. That's the next one our government's going to try to come after. Here's what the, the witness, eyewitness, and the person who lived in this country said. He said, next came gun registration. People were getting injured by guns. Our leader said the real way to catch criminals is by matching serial numbers on guns. Most citizens were law-abiding and dutifully marched to the police station to register their firearms. Not long afterwards, the police said it was best for everyone to turn in their guns. The authorities already knew they had them, so it was futile not to comply. Then it hit the church. Most pastors supported a platform in fear of their life that was contrary to biblical principles, and those who stood up against the government ended up in jail. The name of this movement was called the National Democratic Social Movement, and it was run by a name, Adolf Hitler. That's where socialism takes you. When six million Jews get innocently killed. And oh, by the way, because you're gay, you're dead. Because you don't look like us, we're killing you. Because of this, because of that. Folks, God does not promote socialism. He promotes capitalism. The question is, are we going to be biblical? Does anybody want to learn this stuff? I, mean, I can just stop and preach something different next week. But does anybody want to know what the Bible says? I, 
I'm sincere when I say this. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going against the grain. I don't care what society says. I want to know what does the Bible, I sincerely studied this for myself. What does the Bible say? And I'm telling you, there's no question. After next week, you're going to see it. It's going to be solidly in you. We, God promotes capitalism. He promotes what we're doing, and we should stick by it. We should stand up for somebody say amen. It's called being biblical. Is that okay anymore? Amen. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? God, I thank you that every social thing that we deal with as a nation, it's already in your book what we're supposed to do. I want to know, God. I don't want to do things just because I'm American. I want to do things because I know they're biblical. And God, as I have studied and spent hours, uh, at least 100 hours in this, I'm finding that the way America has done things for hundreds of years is the way you teach us to do them in the Bible. God, let us stand up. And when it comes to something like socialism or capitalism, but I'm talking about other things. Help us to be biblical when temptation comes. Help us to be biblical with the things we watch on our TV screens. Help us to be biblical with the things that we pull up on the internet. Lord, help us to be biblical with the things we share on Facebook and Instagram and social media. Help us to be biblical, God, in the things we say about another person. Help us to be biblical when it comes to believing your word or the lying symptoms of sickness. Help us to be biblical when it comes to the crossroads. Are we going to do this the way society's going? Or are we going to do this the way God says go? I'm not here, God, to know my heart to stir the pot on anything. But I want, as pastor of this church, I feel compelled to teach and make sure that everybody who attends this church knows what your word says. We know what the Bible vindicates and we know what the Bible teaches. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I I know that under the sound of my voice, I I know this is going to sound crazy, but I feel in my spirit. Maybe you've been attending church for a little while now. Maybe you've been coming to church. Maybe you've even been reading your Bible. But have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you asked him to forgive you and come into your heart as your Lord and Savior? I like to ask that when nobody looking around. If that's you, say, me, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Or maybe you're in here and you say, I did it one time, but I'm not where I need to be with God. I want to come back home. Is that you? Is there anybody? Maybe it's somebody watching me right now. God bless you. I see that hand. Is there anybody else? I see that hand. For the sake of this one person, this precious precious soul in the sight of God. I want everybody to pray this with me for you that raise your hand. Just pray this right along with us. Heavenly Father, I ask you forgive me of everything I've ever done wrong. I ask you to come into my heart afresh and anew as my Lord and my Savior. 
Thank you, Lord, that your blood washes my sin away. And thank you, Lord, that my name is now written in the Lamb's book of life. <laughs> Can we give God praise? Come on, can we give God praise? Come on, let's give God praise. Let's bless his name. Hallelujah. Thank you for that precious soul that has come back to you. 